In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Before we get to the text, I want to report to you about our softball team. The starting pitcher this week was me. I walked the first three men. The fourth guy hit a triple. And I couldn't pitch a strike after that. So I pulled myself in the first inning. And we lost both games. So we are now... We are defeated. We haven't won a game. <laughs> but we're having a lot of fun. We are looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, primarily verses 11 and 12. So please follow along in your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at 11 and 12. In this, Peter's first epistle, his attention at our reading from verse 11 shifts to the place or position of Christians in the world and among the Gentiles. <clears throat> if they are, if Christians are God's chosen people, a holy nation and a royal priesthood, which he just stated that we were in the previous verses, how should Christians relate to the society around them? to the governments of this world, and in particular, how should they respond to the world's animosity and rejection? Christians may be God's chosen people and his servants in the world, but the world hardly believes it or sees it that way. So how are Christians to relate to the unbelieving and hostile world? All of this is to come in the following paragraph from verse 11 to the end of the chapter 2. The word beloved and the phrase I beg you indicates that a new set of exhortations is going to be given. Peter begins by repeating what he said about these Christians in brief in his address at the beginning of the letter. That they are sojourners. That is Resident aliens, people who do not have a permanent place in the world. They are also exiles, foreigners. That is, they don't belong to the world's native population. They are outsiders. They will never fully fit in. Of course, this way of speaking about Christians is not original to Peter. Abraham and Jacob thought of themselves as strangers and pilgrims in this world. That is, as people who had no permanent home in this world, but were passing through to somewhere else. That's important. Which is a great irony to me, considering the promised land was to be home to Abraham and his descendants, which we now know that the promised land was a type or shadow of our heavenly home. One example of the fathers seeing themselves as sojourners is when Pharaoh asked Jacob how old he was. Jacob replied, the years of my pilgrimage, pilgrimage are 130. As the book of Hebrews reminds us, to refer to his life as a pilgrimage was a confession of faith. Jacob was a man looking for a better country, and he knew that it was not to be found in this world. He lived on this earth, but never felt at home. 
Hence, he was but a pilgrim in this world. And not surprisingly, King David, in Psalm 39, verse 12, he used the idea of being a stranger and an alien to describe a spiritual point of view. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, stranger as all my fathers were. But what we know of David doesn't have him being an alien or stranger physically. He owned property. He had a family. He had a position in the world. He was a king after all. When David's son by Bathsheba died, he said that he could not then go to where his son now was, but there would be a time where he could go. That is faith that there is another home where we can be with those we love who fear God. So David was a stranger and an alien as his fathers were in the sense of having faith in another home. But here in 1 Peter chapter 2, again, verse 11, Peter uses the idea of being alien in a slightly different way. His is an ethical application. Because Christians are sojourners and exiles in this world, and because it cannot be our home, we cannot get our ethics, our way of life, from the world around us. But we are instead to get it from our true home only, resulting in the Christian life and thus culture being very different than the, than the lives of our neighbors and the culture that they have developed. But let us stay away from going as far as the Amish, who when they hear these words of Peter, they, they hear a defense of the lives and culture they have created. I ran across an article by a former Amish man answering why the Amish live the way they do. He said, quote, well, it's different for everyone. For me, it was a safe, fun and sheltered childhood. But as an adult, it just didn't make much sense anymore. I think to myself that everyone should start out Amish. It's a great boot camp to life in general. It makes you decide what is really important instead of going through life blindly, or at least so for me. I have to admit, he may be on to something there. But Peter is not recommending that our clothes be different and that we should never read books of the world or that we should not be educated about the world. Both Peter and Paul in their sermons and letters reveal an awareness of literature and teachings of their day. They even use such knowledge to address the unbelieving world with the gospel. In fact, verse 12 indicates that Peter fully expected that the Christian sojourners and exiles he was writing to would be living their lives in full view of the unbelieving world. So what is the focus Peter is speaking about in verse 12? It is Christians as sojourners and exiles in the moral and ethical sense. The lives of Christians are to reflect the principles and practices of that place and that world to which they are heading. And because there is 
such a difference between this world and that world, the heavenly realm, it is inevitable that each world should produce a very different type of life. A difference so stark that unbelievers want to join you or despise you. The subject of abortion is an example. After the Supreme Court leak, the despising of those who have a different ethic on the subject of abortion was ramped up to a fever and still is. Such is to be expected. Consider why. All of the laws and mores that have been overturned, implemented, and accepted in just two decades are focused on sexual expression, which is sexuality without restraint. St. Paul says this very thing to the Philippians chapter 3. He says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, that is how they live their life, as you have us for a pattern. You have us for an example. For many walk, live their life, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. He's mourning how they walk and how they're affecting the world. That they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Remember Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. Whose end is destruction, eternal damnation. Whose God is their belly. Belly is a euphemism for any desire of the flesh. And whose glory is in their shame. They think they are right, but they will be condemned. Who set their mind on earthly things, what is not eternal. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Peter is basing our Christian way of life on the fact that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. In verse 11 and 12, the accent falls on distinguishing our lives from the life of the world around us. Here is another important definition of the Christian life. It is not the life that, is the, that the world lives. It is not the life this world teaches us, encourages us, and tempts us to live. It is a different life, a distinct life, a life apart. And this is why the Christian life can be so difficult for the young. One of the greatest temptations in the Western world facing young people is to fit in, to be a part of the crowd, to be considered accepted and liked. Living out the Christian life could actually cause the opposite to occur because living out the Christian life openly causes unbelievers to notice that you are different. Such is also why youth groups and youth gatherings are so important to some parents who see them as a means for their teenager to fit in. Truth be told, such fitting in begins and ends at home, where children can have their social world fulfilled by being under Christian covenant with parents and siblings who love and stand by them and who also prepare them for a world hostile to their Christian faith. But let's get back to the point. Our lives are to be different, purposefully different. And we can examine ourselves to see if we are living different. To examine ourselves, we must ask the following. In what ways is it obvious that you and I do not live 
the world's life. That we belong to another country. That our speech, our customs, and our habits are quite different from those of this world. It is passages like 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 that each of us must take inventory of our individual lives, inventory of our family, of our parish, and ask honest questions and accept honest answers so that if confession and repentance are necessary, then we can get to it. The quicker, the better. In general, have we gotten our ethics from this world or from heaven? Are our business ethics those of this world or those of heaven? Are our family interactions worldly or heavenly? And what of our thinking about and using about the use of money and time or choice of entertainment? How about just how we think about other people? Do we think about people as God, God's word instructs us? Or do we mimic how the people around us think? What would a private investigator say of you after watching you for a week? Would there be enough evidence from his notes to convict you if you were to be put on trial being accused of being a Christian? If these questions make you uncomfortable, then good. Do something about it so that you are comfortable the next time you are called to examine yourself. A beautiful part of the Christian faith is that wrong done can be made right in an instant. I can at one time hoard my money. I then can see that I have made money an idol. Next, I confess such idolatry, receive God's mercy in Christ Jesus, and be done. I'm a new man. The same can be with relationships. Excuse me, I can say. I didn't have a good conversation with you the last time we spoke. I was offended, and I have been shunning you. Please forgive me for my behavior. And you can say, thank you, friend. I forgive you. We shake hands, and it is done. We are in right relationship. Christianity encourages quick turnarounds in life, and that is so very, very freeing. What is also helpful about speaking about our Christian life as sojourners, in addition to the fact that our lives are to be obviously unusual, distinct from the unbelievers around us, is that we are to have where we are going in our minds where we are going in our minds daily. I have preached recently how that phrase, being heavenly minded does no earthly good, just how ridiculous that is. Jesus told us to store up treasures in heaven. Well, can that be done if I'm not thinking about heaven? St. Paul said to the Colossians, set your affection on things above, not on things on this earth. Well, again, how... Can I set my affection on what is above, which is heaven, and not have heaven at the forefront of my thoughts? Those are my affections for crying out loud. They are what I care about most. But let us be practical and concrete. What about heaven is to be on our minds? Well, let's remember what Jesus promised. 
He promised eternal life, which is absence of death, which is the absence of sin because the wages of sin is death. So that is really, really good. No more sin means no more temptation to sin, which is great by itself. And no temptation to sin means no more wrestling with inappropriate thoughts or feelings. No more questioning someone's intentions or promises or motives. There will be no more wondering if you are loved and no obstacles to love others. And the word Jesus uses repeatedly in our gospel reading when describing what the apostles will experience is joy. The feeling of joy is a freed heart, an uplifted heart that feels that everything good can and will happen. It is the feeling that all that is hoped for will be completed. And according to St. Matthew, Jesus said the following about heaven. Truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Thus, we are to think about thrones, apostolic authority, and everything human beings need to be healthy and happy. According to the book of Revelation, thinking of heaven is thinking of seas of glass, singing, not being restricted by physics, rainbows fully formed and connected, streets of gold, and a tree from which we can freely eat that gives life and nothing but life. Beloved, Peter is simply telling Christians to live as strangers and aliens. Each of us must ponder what that means and how best to do that. You must turn your heart and mind heavenward. You must often contemplate your life there and compare it to your life now here. And you must do what the godly have done, always done. Take those steps from time to time to attach yourself to that city and to that world above. Some of you do this already, I know. You go to the cemetery and stand before the graves of loved ones who are now in heaven among the spirits of just men made perfect. And you stare at that stone until you think you can see your own name written there. It is both sobering and necessary. With my mind on my heavenly home, I want to do what is necessary to conform my life to that home. And that means that my ethics and morality are to match that home. And we are to take a lifetime to match it, however long that life is. A few weeks ago, I was recalling the feeling I would get when in college and finals week was always a burdensome time. But after I would take my last final before summer break, my car was loaded down, ready to go home. And I would remove the sunroof of my, yeah, you did remove the sunroof back in the day from my 1979 cherry red turbocharged Mustang. 
I would then roll the windows down, put on some Christian rock in my tape cassette, <laughs> crank up the volume, and head home, which was 300 miles away. That feeling was like no other. I have not experienced those emotions since the last time I did that. But I want my dying to be like that. I want to feel the burdens lifted. Nothing but freedom ahead and a desire to be home. Amen.